Well, if you have a Bible with you or around you or on a phone or tablet or something, I'll invite you to pull it out, open it up, and we are back in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. And we're really kind of sticking to just a couple verses in this center chapter of Ephesians. And if you've been around Trinity, you may recognize them because they were our benediction for the entirety of 2022. Every service that we closed, twice a Sunday we read these verses and and prayed them over one another. And so we thought as we launch into 2023, it would be good to really dig into them even deeper and just remind us of, of what Paul is praying for us in these, these, uh, these words, these verses. And so there, there's a, a sense that, that this prayer, plunked right in the middle of the letter, uh, is kind of the culmination of the first three chapters. And, and some suggest, too, that the first three chapters of Ephesians are, in fact, all one big prayer. That Paul starts by saying, man, I wish I was with you guys. Remember, he, the writer has this history, three years he spent in the city with these people, planting the churches, raising up leaders, and then sending them out. And he just, he longs to be with them. And so he's got this heart that breaks for being apart from, from his family. And he says, here's, what, here's why we got together. Here's all the things that are true about you because of Jesus. Here's all this, and it just goes on and on and on. And then he gets to this section, and he, the only reasonable response to everything God has done for this church and for us is that Paul says, and so I fall to my knees to pray. Let me start reading for us from Ephesians 3, picking up at verse 14. It's for this reason, because of all these things God has done for us. I kneel before the Father, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're digging into this passage because not only do we want it to, to remind us of our identity, of who we are in Christ, we want it to also point us to, to, to who we are as, as followers. And, and, and in many ways, though, this prayer really is kind of the, the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, one writer notes that in, that in this prayer, uh, Christians discover what it means to be a Christian. It means to know God as the all-loving, all-powerful Father. It means putting down roots into that love. Or to change the picture, it says, having that love as the rock-solid foundation for every aspect of one's life. And then it means having that love turn into a well-directed and effective energy in one's life. There's lots of good reasons to be sitting in these couple verses for a month. See, every single day, every single one of us chooses what we're going to base our whole lives on, whether we realize it or not. And I don't know about you, but I don't usually wake up in the morning and think, okay, who, who do I need to make happy today 
so that I feel fulfilled, with, fulfilled in my life? Or who do I need to impress so that I seem important to the world around me? I don't wake up thinking that. However, my actions often suggest that's what goes on in my life. Whenever I, when I get up, and again, maybe it's just me. The first service I asked them, well, maybe it is just you, Sean, but maybe it's just me and you guys have this all figured out. But when I get up and, and I start to think about, okay, what should I wear? I mean, I'm in Canmore, so I got to fit in. Okay, so I need, I need the like hiking shoes. I probably shouldn't wear dress clothes because who wears dress clothes, right? Leave the tie at home. Leave the suit jacket at home. I need the climbing pants. I need the, right? I'm thinking about this. I need to fit in. I need to belong. When I, when I walk out the front door and I, I look at my neighbor and say, okay, he drives that, she drives that, they're driving that, what do I need here? Right? It, all, all these little things. When I think about, okay, I, I'm, I'm on my phone, I'm posting on social, as many of us do. If I put this quote, what will those who see it think about me? See, when, whenever we start to allow those kinds of thoughts to rule our decisions, and we all do it. There's a million other examples of ways we do this. I'm giving people power over me, right? When I think, okay, if my neighbors think this way of me after this renovation project, I'm going to shift who I am, what I do, so that they appreciate me, right? They have a power over me. And so I may start to shape who I am or who I think I am based on the way other people look at me. And it doesn't matter if you're 8 years old or 80 years old, you fit into this somewhere. These thoughts run through our minds. What do people think about me? And again, when, when, when I take the time to try to polish up this image to fit into whatever group it might be, I'm giving people power over me that they don't deserve and honestly can't handle. And Paul says, none of those things ultimately matter. The clothes you wear, the house you're in, the car you drive, what the people around you think of you ultimately doesn't matter. And so he prays that we would recognize that the only firm foundation in this life comes from our all-loving, all-powerful God. And when we lean on him, and when we allow our lives to be rooted in what he says about us, that's where we'll find everything we need for a rich and full life. Now imagine with me, if you will, look back at the last week that you just spent and think about all the time you put into your image. Whether it's doing your hair or picking your clothes or all the things, posting on social, where you went to eat, what, what you did, all the things. Think of all the, the hours that you spent, consciously or not, trying to imp impress people around you. I'm going to use that word. I almost didn't, but I'm going to. How would our lives look different if instead of me trying to make sure you like me, I love you all and I do want you to like me, what if I took that time and instead thought, okay, God, you're the one that matters. What if I invest those hours into becoming who you've created me to be? Right? What if we, we took those hours and poured them into growing and exercising our spiritual gifts and the talents and the abilities God has given us? How, how different would your life look? 
Think about what it might look in, in a week if you took, let's round down and say that hour, thinking about what my neighbors think about me, and instead sat in silence and asked God what he thought about me. What about in a month or in a year? How different would our lives look? Paul spent two chapters of this letter reminding us that God has done so much for us, that he loves us like crazy, that he, that he gave his son for us, and then he burst into prayer. He says, and I pray that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened in your inner being through the power of his spirit. When Paul is talking about the, the inner being here, or maybe your translation has uh, your heart or something like that, he's talking about what truly makes you, you. He's not talking about it as hard as just the muscle that pumps. He's not talking about kind of this ethereal thing, but it's, it's what makes you, you. He's pointing to that thing that is the center of your personality, where kind of your thoughts originate from, where your will, your emotions, that inner being, that, that heart that kind of soul thing. The words are kind of hard to wrap around this, but the thing that makes you new. And he's looking at the internals, not at the externals. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. And he prays that God would strengthen us with his power right in the center of who we are. Right in our, in our hearts, in our souls, in our inner beings. Because that's where we need the strength. That's, that's where we need the power. Because we've said it before, and maybe you've heard it before, whatever we give our heart to, the rest of us will follow. I may decide to, to just modify some behaviors and will myself to stop doing this thing or start doing this other thing, but if my heart doesn't change, I'm not ultimately going to change. Whatever we give our heart to, the rest of us will follow. So it's actually our inner being. It's actually this heart where we need God to work. We need him to give us the strength and power in our hearts, in our centers, because it's, it's from our hearts that we, we, we fight temptation and sin. It's, it's from our hearts that we, we strive to follow what God has called us to do, whether it's easy or whether it's getting harder and harder by the day. It's from our hearts that we proclaim what God has been up to in our lives and, and proclaim what God has been up to for other people and, and call them to follow him. And it's from our hearts that we love every single person around us the way Jesus loved us. And so we need his power. Earlier in the, la the letter, Paul talked about um, this power of God in, in chapter 1, kind of verse 19, 20 or so. And he prays that, that for the church, for his, his readers then, and for us now, he prays that, that the eyes of your heart may be opened so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, sometimes when we read our Bibles, the kind of describing words, we just sort of gloss over them and say, okay, God, power, got it. I've heard that before. Let's carry on. But Paul says immeasurable. That's, that's a really big word. Think about the world around us. When we, when we think about power, we can measure a lot of things. Every single one of, maybe not all of us drove here, but every single one of us that has a car, we could open up our devices and find out how much power that engine has, right? It's measurable. We can even uh, do a little bit of research and find uh, how much power is in the power grid that keeps our lights on and keeps our Tesla's plugged in and all the things, right? It's measurable. We can 
we can measure the power of the wind, of, of the water that rushes down and spins turbines and gives us power for our everything. We can measure these things. They're measurable. We can uh, measure or approximate the power of an explosive volcano. Or we can measure the power of, an exp- of, of TNT or dynamite as it blows up. We can measure that. We can even measure the power of a nuclear bomb as it goes off, right? We have a number that we can put on these things. We can even, this maybe gets a little more into the approximate range, but we can stare at the tiny little ball of fire in relation to the universe that we call our sun and measure how much energy is coming out of it. And we can look at all the other stars, the light years and light years away, and approximate and measure how much power is coming from them. But Paul says, God's power is immeasurable. You can measure a lot of things. This is beyond that. Now, one of the one of the joys and the hardships, put it that way maybe, of preparing a message is that darn it, these words have to work in my heart first before I bring them. And so as I, I sat, I can't remember if it was Thursday or Friday, and was, was writing and Obviously, you may be able to tell, got hung up a little bit on this word immeasurable. I just had to stop and think and thought, man, God, I sure try to do a lot under my power when you have said, here's my immeasurable power. Just how great is this power? You can flip back to Ephesians 1 again. Paul talks about it in verse 20. It says that God exercised this immeasurable power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. And it goes on to say that Jesus is now seated above every ruler, authority, power, dominion, every title, not only in this age, but in the age to come, over everything. Everything is subjected to Jesus' feet. Now, as far as we have come in our medical system, to my knowledge... I am not aware of any other person ever who was dead for three days and then came back to life, was raised from the dead. Maybe it happened. I haven't heard of that yet. There is some power here. This power offered to us that Paul prays that we would understand and have is the power that's brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's the power that helps us to renew our minds, to think rightly about ourselves and God and the world around us. It's the the power that will help us break those habits and those thought processes and all the things that we think, this is just who I am. I cannot change this. This power is enough to change all of that. This is the power that brings freedom to our lives. This is the power that overcomes sin and death. And Paul would write elsewhere, that the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And Paul prays that we would get that. That it wouldn't just be, I know where to find that verse in the Bible, or I know how to Google it. I think the Bible says, I'll type it into my phone, and oh, there it is. He prays that we would get that in our innermost beings. He would also write to another church, therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, or you might be able to say that this, this kind of flesh jacket that we're wearing, even though it's wearing out, 
It's, it's going away. Things are creaking and crunching more than they used to. It's a little harder going in the morning. Or even though it's being destroyed, it doesn't matter. Because our inner being is being renewed day by day because God is good. So many ways that the world around us emphasizes the physical. Eat right, work out, wear the right clothes, dress the right things, say the right things, do all the stuff that, that you just project to the world around you to look good. And the Bible says, forget all that. First Samuel 16, the second half of the verse, we read that humans don't see what the Lord sees. Humans look at what's visible, but the Lord sees the heart. That's, that's what we want. I pray that our inner beings would be strengthened by his power. Paul goes on to say that he prays that, that, that our inner beings would be strengthened by his power because, in verse 17, Jesus will make his home in our hearts. There's a reason we need that too. It's not just to, to have power, but it's because Jesus is going to actually dwell within us. And these two asks that Paul makes, they're, they're tied together. We need to be strengthened in our inner beings so that Christ will take up residence in our inner beings. Now, maybe I'll ask, I don't know if I want to ask for a show of hands. I probably will. Lots of us maybe grew up with the understanding that to become a Christian meant to ask Jesus into your heart, right? Anybody else ever heard that? Okay, a couple of us. Thank you. And that's a part of what Paul's talking about here. If, if Jesus is going to dwell in our hearts, he needs to be invited. Okay? The Spirit of God will never force himself. He needs to be invited, but that's not it. That's not all it is. For many of us in, in North America, we've reduced it to, to praying a prayer, asking Jesus into my heart, and then getting on with my life as if nothing changed. That's so, it's so lacking. It's so missing. We're not just asking Jesus to come into our hearts and having a little fire insurance in case hell is real and I don't want to go there. We ask Jesus in our hearts. We're asking him to actually rule over our lives. We're asking him to have authority over us. We're saying to him, listen, I, I need your help. I don't know what to do. And when I try to, to do life my own way, it <laughs> doesn't seem to work so well. It does it for, for moments, maybe, but man, there's something missing. It's saying, I, I trust Jesus that you have my best interests in heart, in at your heart. So would you would you just come and take over? Here's the thing, we we cannot cannot follow Jesus and stay the same. We can't. Because when Jesus comes and dwells within us, when he moves into our hearts, when he lives in our innermost beings, he will expose things in our lives that are not the way they should be. And he calls us to, to deal with those things, to, to flee from sin, to run to him. He calls us to, to reach up to his glorious standard and for sure gives us the power to to get on the way there. And he promises to be with us every step of the way. He doesn't say, clean up your junk and then come to me. He says, okay, let's, let's work on this. You've got some stuff. <laughs> Let me help you with it. Jesus' call on our life is not, let me affirm everything about you. Let me make you feel all warm and fuzzy as we go on this journey together. But Jesus' call is, take up your cross 
die to yourself and follow me and trust me and walk with me. It's interesting. Well, you may not think it's interesting, but I do. But this morning, the verse of the day in the YouVersion Bible app is Matthew 16, 24. Jesus says, to be my follower, take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. Just, he just keeps hitting me with it. So when Paul says that, that Christ, in verse 17, dwells in our hearts, he means that, that Jesus will inhabit us, that he will be in control, and we'll look to him, and we will concede our authority to him. And he's good. We sang that. We, ha- we can't forget that. We're not just willy-nilly handing control of our life to someone who may not have our best interests. He is good. He is faithful. A couple of weeks ago, we were in, uh, it was in Hebrews, I think, where he said, the, the one who promises these things is good for the promises. He's faithful. We can't forget that. D.A. Carson, uh, who is a, a pastor and, and professor and commentator, says this, when, when Christ takes up residence, when he dwells in a believer... It's like a couple who purchases a home that needs a lot of work. Now, has anyone found themselves watching too many home renovation shows over the past little bit? You've seen these shows at least, right? Some of, okay, wait. It's, you've got a 60-minute window, and this couple finds this rundown something, and they meet the perfect realtor, because all the perfect realtors are everywhere, uh, especially in the Bow Valley, Ooh. Who, who happens to know the perfect contractors who, who can do everything on time and usually on budget or under budget, right? And 45 minutes later, they're in their dream home. Well, I, you know, I've got a few years ahead of me yet, I, I hope, Lord willing. I don't think it always works like that. Carson says when, when, when the Christ comes to inhabit us, it's like this couple that finds the run-down house. And it needs some time, it needs some love, it needs to be cleaned up, it needs to be repaired, and eventually, after longer than 45 minutes, they can say, man, this house has been shaped to meet our needs, and it, it, it just fits, and we, we love it here. In the same way, when Christ takes up residence in us, he finds the moral equivalent to trash everywhere, to, to black and silver wallpaper, to a leaking roof, to a dripping faucet, to a cracked foundation. He finds that. He's like, okay, we got some work. But he sets about turning that home into a place that is good for him. He starts working on the uh, transformation of our lives. When he first moves into our hearts, he finds us in bad repair. And it takes a great deal of power to fix things, to change us. And that's why Paul prays that we would understand that power. Because Jesus is transforming who we are so that we might reflect his character. And that transformation is going to take a lot of work. It's not going to come easy. Sorry. (laughs) I'm not sorry. Just the way it is. It will have costs tied to it. Probably more than you think. See, the renovation analogy, it sticks. It works here, right? Or the construction analogy. The thing is, it's not our our natural longing or wanting to give up control of our lives, is it? It's not normal to us. Because of the the world we live in and, and the sin we live in, many of us have learned to put ourselves first. No one else is going to take care of me like I need to, so I'm going to do it myself. 
We've learned to, to strive to, to take control of, of everything we are, to believe that, that my ideas are right, my ideas are good, and I'll do what I want to do because that's what's best for me. Well, let me suggest lovingly, as your pastor, you're wrong. It's not what's best to go your own way. It's not what's best to insulate yourself from people. It's not what's best to try to control every aspect of your life. Without Jesus as your Lord and Savior, without Jesus as your your leader and rescuer, you just won't find the abundant life that your heart craves. It just won't happen. And I, I know it's hard to give up control. This, this is a constant struggle. Some, someday, I hope and pray that I can stand up here and say, I, I got it. Christ in me, I figured it out. I've let go. But that day is not today. I, I think I'm you know, growing here. But my, my story is one where, I, where I, I grab control and I don't understand the, the, the things going on around me. So I, if I hang on, protect my little heart from getting hurt, then it's going to be okay. And slowly but surely, the Lord works and tries to get some of that control back. And sometimes I, I listen and then I try to grab something back for me. And then he works on me some more. And then I stick my nails in something else that he's trying to deal with and try to pull. It's a constant journey, this transformation. But the call of Jesus is one of surrender. The call is to loosen our grips and to actually let go of control of our lives. That's what Jesus asked for. And Jesus can go to work on that surrendered heart, though. And he can, he can work his transformation, and he can turn you and me into someone in his likeness. And it's beautiful. He'll take your heart, whatever, whatever condition it's in today, however you offer it up, and he'll move in, and with his loving kindness, he will start a renovation work that will transform you into who you were made to be. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola said that sin is an unwillingness to trust what God wants is our deepest happiness. Came across that, and I got stuck there a little bit this week, too, that sin is our unwillingness, or it is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. See, when I go against what the Bible calls me to, what Jesus wants for me, what I'm saying to God is, you don't have my best interests in hearts, so I'm going this way. So every time we try to, to, to grab little bits of control of our lives, we're saying, you know what? I, I think I'm a better God for me than you are. See, until we're convinced that what God wants is our deepest happiness, our, our, our flourishing, that he wants what's best for us, we will keep trying to grab that control, wrestle that control of our lives. Another meaning of the word surrender is to, to give over or to return that which truly belongs to another. So we are surrendering to God because we truly believe to him. It means taking the, the full weight of all your hope, all your trust, all you are, and putting it on something or someone. Let me give you an example. Right now, uh, every... Every single one of you is surrendered to the chair you're sitting on. You trust it with all of your weight, right? If that chair is not good and decides to let go, you're going down. You're not catching yourself, right? We're all, 
hitting the floor. Well, you all are. I'm standing up. I'm okay. But there's another, and I think maybe a, a better metaphor for surrender. Think about being on a trapeze. And I don't know if you've seen the, 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 the circus trapezing thing over by Callaway Park there when you drive towards the city and the crazies that swing on this thing. But think about trapeze artists, okay? And don't just think about watching it. Think about hanging on to one of them yourself. And not just hanging on, swinging back and forth. I think that, that, that'd be enough for me to step off the platform, swing out, get back, and catch, and then climb down the ladder and be good. But think about flying through the air and then letting go and expecting to be caught. Surrender. Okay, that, that's what I want in your head. In that moment, when you let go, nothing you can do will stop you from hitting the ground. You've put all your trust in someone else. Uh, Henry Nouwen was a, a Dutch Catholic priest, professor, theologian, maybe you've heard the name. Uh, and as he neared the end of his life, he had a sabbatical coming, and in his sabbatical, he actually gave serious effort to learning how to trapeze. Which for me, just says, old dogs can learn new tricks, right? You're never too old to try something new. And so he took the time and he went out with this troop of flyers and he learned to trapeze. I'm not sure how good he got at it. And it might seem like a really odd thing to take up as you get to the end of your days. And, but for much of his life, he struggled with giving up control. And he, and he knew that this was a, a constant wrestle for him. So he gave up himself to the ultimate object lesson of surrender. He said he wanted to, to bask in the reality of the metaphor by hanging in midair and learning to be caught. Whew. He says that his, his key learning to the process was that to be caught safely, the person being caught must be completely still. Not trying to sort it out for themselves, not trying to flap to get back up, be completely still so that someone could catch them and trust in the catcher's ability to catch. And so time after time, as he hung in the air, completely depending on another, his faith was fed by this tangible release of control. Uh, John Ortberg picks up on this in one of his writings too, and he says that the word trapeze, that little bar between the ropes that you hang on to and have to let go of, actually comes from an ancient Greek word, trapeza, meaning table. And about the only time that this word is used in the New Testament, it's when the writer says that Jesus has gathered his friends around the table, which we now call the communion table. And he tells them that he's going to have to let go of his life, and they're going to have to let go of theirs. And then Jesus climbs up on the cross and lets go. And he hangs above the earth for three hours with his hands stretched out, not moving a muscle. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And when Jesus did that, he was saving us. But he was also teaching us about trust. So here's our leap. God comes to us and says, just let go. Just let go. So will you let Jesus come rule your heart? Will you allow him into those dark padlocked, secreted, walled areas that we all have, pretty sure, say, Jesus, take, take this broken foundation, take this 
ugly wallpaper, take these things, renovate this part of my life. Will you surrender your life to him? These verses, Paul prays that you and I would be strengthened with his power so that Christ can come and dwell in our hearts and do the work. The question is, will we let him? There's one more piece to the metaphor. As you've been picturing it in your mind, I suspect maybe you're thinking of, of two really high platforms with a couple of ropes swinging back and forth and people swinging on the, like, the flyers on, on the trapeze doing their swinging. Maybe you hang on to one and, and not letting go. That's where I am. I'm not letting go of that thing. Forget that. But there's another piece. In the whole system, there's always an expert, an instructor, a coach on the ground who can see the whole thing, who is so familiar with the world that he can tell, nope, it's late, don't jump. Oh, the timing's not right, hang on. He can see everything objectively and knows where everyone needs to be for this thing to work. See, if we're on that trapeze and we're swinging around and I'm trying to do my best from, okay, they gave me a flight lesson down below, I don't want to hit that thing. If I'm trying to line up in my head what I know and my timing and I'm going to do it the way I want to do, I'm hitting the, I'm hitting the mat, right? I'm going to the net. But if I, if I put my trust in that expert coach who sees everything, who sees way more than I could see, who knows all the things, and I wait for him to say, go, and then I let go, I'm going to get caught every time. So the flyer can't just put their own trust in themselves. It doesn't work that way. It's only when they trust the coach that, the, that, the, that they can let go and be caught. So when we're talking about surrender, I'm not asking you to blindly take what you can see and just say, okay, and let go. I'm asking you to, to give your life to someone who can see the whole picture. To someone who can, can see what we see, but can also see what's happened before and what's coming next and, and all the things. To, to give your life to someone who knows the whole story, who can see the start and who can see the finish. So we surrender to Jesus. And without doing this, without the surrender, our faith will just stagnate. But Jesus is good. He's worth it. He's good for it. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He determined when in history we should live. He placed us in, with who we are. He put us in this room together at this time, and he is working out his will in our lives. And he loves us, and he is committed to our flourishing. He's committed to our joy. He's committed to us becoming who he created us to be. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you love us. Again, Jesus, forgive me for all, all the times that I have wrestled back control of my life from you. For, for all the ways where I have, have even known maybe what you've asked me to do and gone my own way because it seems right to me in my own eyes instead of listening to you. Jesus, I want to ask you again this morning to, to move into my heart, to inhabit and dwell within me. I invite you to have a look around, see the mess, and I ask for your power to go to work. Not so that I would look good, but so that you would look good as you work in and through me. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our perfect example, that you showed us how to live, that you exercised 
the Spirit's power in you and through you to those around you. Thank you that you gave up your life for me. And thank you that you conquered sin and death so that I can be called your son. That we can be called your children. Go to work in our hearts this week. In Jesus' name, amen.